You're listening to the Theology for the Church podcast with Dr. Caleb Leonard, a resource for the church that aims to help Christians explore how Christian doctrine, framed by the biblical story, is to be applied to the Christian life in the context of the local church. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Theology for the Church podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Glad, Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, to discuss the theology of Luke's gospel. Dr. Glad, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me for this conversation. Yes, of course, Caleb. Thanks so much for having me on, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before we jump into some specific questions about our topic, since it's the first time I've had you on the show, would you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself for our listeners? How did you get where you are today? Maybe a little bit about your family and uh, church ministry, educational background, those type of things. Yeah, uh, I grew up in a conservative home, Um, went to a conservative uh, college, graduated, majored in Greek and Hebrew. I like studying the Bible. I like studying the languages. And I just, I just sort of kept going. And, um, and here I am. I, I did not aspire to do this. I just, I, I just aspired to teach the Bible, to pastor something along those lines. But here I am. Uh, I've been married for 18 years. I have two kids, uh, Judah and Simon, 13 and 10. And so I've been teaching here at RTS going on 12 years. So it's, it's, it's been a great thing. Oh, that's, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And, you know, we're going to talk about theology of, of Luke's gospel account. And, but I think before we get into kind of some, you know, unique nuances of Luke and themes and, and things like that, you know, maybe some of our listeners, it's been a while, you know, their Bible reading plan since they've, you know, been in, in, uh, in Luke or even in a gospel, uh, for, for that matter. Uh, so maybe we could just establish some basic facts, maybe some historical context in, in which this gospel came to be, you know, thinking of things like, you know, who, who wrote Luke, when, when and where was it written to, to whom was it written? What's kind of a basic you know, skeleton that we could keep in mind for um, our conversation and as we read Luke's gospel on our own. Yeah, I mean, it's probably <clears throat> dating dating a gospel is is exceptionally difficult for lots of reasons. Yeah. Dating Luke is even more difficult because even more reasons. Uh, what does Peg get in the mid-60s, roughly about 30 or 35 years after Christ ascends? And uh, this guy named Luke wrote it. How do we know he wrote it? Well, that's a that's a tricky thing too. Um, all of our manuscripts have the title according to Luke, so we should assume that it's Luke. Um, Luke, uh, Paul tells us a little bit of helpful bits about Luke. One that he's a doctor, and two indirectly that he's a Gentile. So here we have a Gentile doctor. We can read uh, when we read Luke in Greek. Luke acts in Greek. It's a it's a pretty good Greek. It's better than I, I hate to put it like this, but it's it's has a higher prose than a Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more polished than Mark's gospel. And um, whether that's because of Luke himself or the scribe that he used to write his gospel and Acts, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what we get. 
So here, uh, what makes Luke more difficult, especially with Matthew too, is that they're going to use Mark's gospel when they write. They appear to have a copy of Mark as they compose both Matthew and Luke. They have Mark's gospel in hand, and then Luke is going to write his gospel uh, as a supplement or as a complementary account to what Mark gives us. And so Mark was written evidently a couple years earlier than Luke and Matthew. So we that's why we put Luke's gospel in the 60s, could be late 60s, probably not in the 70s, probably not in the early 60s. So a lot of sort of conservative evangelicals put it right there in the mid 60s. The last event, so Luke and Acts were written together. They're published in a two volume set. And the last event that takes place is Paul in prison or at least house arrest in Rome. And that is, he's going to serve, or he's going to be in Rome from AD 60 to 62. And since Luke tells us that he was in Rome for two years, we can put the last dent, the last dent, the last date in Acts at around AD 62. So do you see, that's how we arrive at the, at at the mid sixties. Yeah. So last event takes place AD 62 at the end of Acts. So it's got to be after that event. And it's most likely before AD 70. So that, so 64, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, mm-hmm. any of those are really on the table. Uh, once you get into the late 60s, you have the destruction of the temple, the siege of Jerusalem with the Romans. So, you, you know, it, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult around there, but somewhere in there. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really helpful. And then if we were going to say, um, just kind of your take on, you know, just breaking Luke into like major sections or like literary units that would help us kind of have a skeleton or kind of a rough outline of of Luke. What what's kind of the flow of of his his narrative? Yeah. So broadly speaking, Luke falls into three chunks: Jesus, his birth the beginning of it is ministry, his temptation. And then um, he's going to go up to Galilee. And uh, from chapters, really from chapters four, like midway through four, all the way up through end of chapter nine, he's in Galilee. And then at the end of nine, from nine to 19, it's the road to Jerusalem. So that journey there is 10 whole chapters, which is much longer than any other account that we have. And then the rest of the material from uh, end of 19 all the way through 24 is, of course, going to take place in Jerusalem and, and right around there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's helpful uh, just to kind of gain like an overall, you know, framework. So then we start talking about certain, you know, themes we can kind of, look at those different movements and and see where those are are taking place. And, you know, I I think another important intro question for uh, any book really, but particularly the the different gospel accounts is, is I think, you know, what's Luke's reason, you know, for writing this gospel, right? We said, Hey, we already have Mark, right? Uh, Why was it written? And, and tell us maybe a little bit about Luke's writing style. Like what's unique about, you know, his, his style, right? I mean, we have four gospels. We have these different portraits of, of the life and, and the work and the ministry, uh, you know, of, of Christ. What, what's, what's Luke's unique 
contribution? Uh, why, why do we need the, the Gospel of Luke? Well, Luke tells us. there are uh, Two of the four Gospels tell us why they are written. Um, Luke tells us here in chapter, th- in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I decided to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Theophilus is most likely a Christian. He appears to be a Christian here. And so Luke is going to write his gospel to confirm Theophilus's faith. In other words, this is a gospel for Christians, and Richard Bauckham has argued, and I think pretty persuasively, that all the gospels are written for Christians. They're not written for unbelievers. Unbelievers would be sort of a secondary purpose, a secondary audience. So the primary audience of Luke's gospel is Theophilus and Christians. And why does he write this? So that they may know for sure that what they have heard is indeed true. It's 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 a it's an amazing thing. Those who struggle with their faith, they need to read the Gospels. I think a lot of people who struggle with what they believe, who is Jesus, they just simply don't know him. They haven't taken the time to study the Gospels. They yeah. probably just have some sort of a cursory understanding of him. They need they really need to trenchantly study. And one way to easily do that is to simply write out the Gospels. Just copy them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just copy them out and you will be astounded how much you learn just by doing that easy thing. So he, yeah. so, so Luke is going to write, you've asked me, you asked me two or three questions. Luke writes this book to confirm, to affirm uh, Theophilus's faith, to give him uh, a robust understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, what are some features I already mentioned that this is a, uh, this is a higher Greek, this is a more polished Greek. This is a difficult. I don't have my first years, my first year Greek students read this book. It's just it really mm-hmm. is uh, a different level, and so it's a it's a more polished. Uh, when he quotes the Old Testament, when Luke quotes the Old Testament, he draws from the Greek all a translation of the Old Testament. We call that the Septuagint, and obviously, when he alludes to the Old Testament, he's alluding to it in the Septuagint as well. So it's a very Greek book. Yeah. Uh, Lucas probably Paul appears to, to to at least indirectly label him a Gentile. He was probably, and again, we're guessing here just because of some things that we find in the book. He probably converted to Judaism, and then he converted to Christianity. I, it mm. doesn't appear that as though he was he was straight up pagan, and then went from paganism into Christianity. He sure. appears to have converted to Judaism, we call him a God-fear, and then he became a Christian as a God-fear. So that seems to be the trajectory here. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, you know, before we jump into some of the, you know, biblical theological themes of of Luke's gospel, I want to touch on what you kind of finished up with there, and that's uh, like Luke's use of the Old Testament. And how how can a good understanding of the Old Testament help readers understand Luke with with greater clarity? And and how can Luke help us understand kind of the the shadows and types in in the Old Testament with greater appreciation for their significance? By reading the Old Testament. I mean, how can you get, I mean, think about it. It's like, it's like watching a Marvel movie. One, it's the 
and you don't know anything about the Marvel universe, any about the Marvel stories or with any, yeah. you know, Star Wars. Or, I mean, you've got to have some sense of the narrative. You have to have some sense of the big picture. Otherwise, I mean, you can still appreciate Luke's gospel without knowing the Old Testament. Well, of course you can. Just like you can appreciate a Marvel movie without knowing the full picture. You can, of course, you can get a basic level understanding. But if you really want to dig in to Luke, you need to know the Old Testament too. You need to use your cross-references. Your cross-references will tell you where are the prominent allusions, where are the quotations, so that you can trace them out. It's not particularly difficult. You just got to find a good uh, cross-reference. I like the Holman cross-references. The NASB's uh, cross-references are pretty good. ESV, NIV's okay. But, uh, you know, just just... Take the time, look at those Old Testament cross-references, and you'll see the connections pop out. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's so true. I know for, you know, for me, I, I found that in my own, you know, life and, and study and ministry. Yeah. The, the cross-references are your friends. Like, that's the ultimate Bible study tool, right, of, of just taking the time of uh, saying – okay, something's going on here. I, I should go find out the Old Testament context. I should see how the New Testament author is, is using right, uh, this, right. this verse and, and seeing, you know, is there some type of, you know, promise and, and fulfillment happening here? Is there is there some way that they're uh, helping us understand, uh, you know, in a greater canonical context, right? That mm-hmm. what's taking place here. And I think that comes... Uh, so much to life in that first section of Luke with the the birth of of Christ and uh, the temptation um, of Jesus and uh, by Satan in the wilderness and and just seeing you know how is Christ fulfilling uh, these Old Testament types these Old Testament you know promises as uh, the birth narrative unfolds as as his temptation takes place and then kind of launching into his mm-hmm. his public ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good. And, you know, in, in, in your book, From the Manger to the Throne, you, you highlight seven biblical theological themes, the, the great reversal, uh, peace of, uh, on earth and in heaven, Israel, the Gentiles and I, Isaiah's servant, uh, the way of life, the success of the last Adam, the son of man's rule and in the ancient of days, and then seventh, the the year of you know jubilee, and and really kind of unpack those in in a really helpful uh, way. And and so I I thought maybe just to kind of give um, you know our listeners a taste, I want them to pick up your book and read it. Uh, but maybe we could take you know a few of these uh, as kind of like a teaser trailer, uh, you know, for for what they can expect to kind of find in each chapters. You know, you kind of help help us read. Uh, Luke better for for ourselves. So uh, maybe we'll take kind of the the first one here. You, you talk about the great reversal of exaltation of the humble and the humiliation of the proud. What, what's going on with this with this theme in the Gospel of Luke? Right. So in Luke one fifty two, I think this is one of the the key verses in the whole book. He says. God or he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is from the Magnificat. Uh, that's, this is Mary's song. It's in verse 52, 52 of chapter 1. And here Mary is identifying a key aspect of Jesus' career. But we find, you know, of course this is a key aspect of not just 
Jesus career, but the story of the story of the Bible, the story of Israel. And, um, you know, we see this inversion, whereas the lowly, they become great. And those who are great become low. And really, this is brought sort of to a climax in Jesus' career. Of course, you know, he's low, born in, you know, very poor circumstances. And yet he even descends into hell itself, uh, in a manner of speaking, you know, at the cross. And then where does he go? He goes, he's exalted to the highest position one can imagine, to the throne of God. Whereas those in authority, wicked rulers in Luke's gospel, what are they? They are demoted. So we have, uh, whether it's political rulers, whether it's religious rulers, they are all um, demoted. So it's this inversion. It's a vertical inversion. The mighty and the powerful become low, and the low become exalted. And you, I mean, even Zacchaeus, right? The you know, wee little man. Notice how Luke is quick to point out his stature, and so and I think it's because he wants to elevate him. Yeah, and I and I can't uh, reading you know that section you and you highlight this in, in that section by just uh, just to thinking I, I'm I was actually reading when I when I read this book I was in First Samuel and so mm-hmm. it was such a yeah right it was such You'll a fun a lot of things uh, section there. yeah it was such a fun right. section uh, to read because throughout the whole book you have like this the the, the reversal you know or the the exaltation of the humble and the hum- humiliation of the proud mm-hmm. and you even That's have exactly that right. language of you know, someone's physical stature, you know, or appearance mm-hmm. and, and how that's linked. Right. How, uh, how, how Saul was a tall guy, right? Tall and in stature, whereas David, who is this guy? He's the youngest. He's, you know, he's a shepherd. He, you know, but yet, yet he is exalted throughout his career. And of course, the Song of Hannah, uh, the mm-hmm. Magnificat here is modeled, is probably modeled after the Song of Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. So I find that super super fascinating. And, and, you, and then you talk about peace on earth and in heaven, like Jesus's ministry from beginning to end is the pursuit of end time cosmic peace. So you kind of give this biblical theology of, you know, cosmic unity and yeah, ju- just wondering like, what, what, what do you mean by that? How, do, how does Jesus bring, you know, cosmic unity in his life, death and resurrection? Yeah, that's a tricky thing. And it's tricky because you have to put some of these pieces together where the Bible does not give us a developed um, theology here because you're getting in the demons and angels and and both the physical and invisible elements and how at the fall, all of the entire cosmos, the entire cosmos, both was was broken now of course before the fall uh there was appeared to be an angelic rebellion satan you know this whole thing but they're really at the fall there really was a cosmic a cosmic uh shift and so the whole argument goes is that now finally with jesus because of his work he's now brought he's now putting back the cosmos and he's re he's reordering not just the physical but the spiritual realms there's a reordering that's that's taken place in him yeah. so that's what i mean cosmic peace so there's peace in the heavenlies peace in the invisible realms and now peace in the physical realms 
Yeah, and around. I think that's a yeah, and that's a that's a really helpful you know chapter. And I kind of, and I, I really liked how it rolled into you know the the next one where it talks about you know Israel, the Gentiles, you know Isaiah's suffering servant, you know kind of this Jesus's twofold mission, right? The the restoration of the remnant of Israel and the inclusion of of the nation. So you have mm-hmm. you know like cosmic unity. You're talking about right. Like so you have angelic- heaven and earth. Right, mm-hmm. have it in earth, and then now we get into a horizontal dimension where the nations and the Jews, and how there needs to be unity, how Christ came to bring unity there as well. So that's what I mean. So that's why I did these a vertical one, uh, a peace in heaven, and then a horizontal one. And that's where the key verse here is found in Simeon in his prophecies slash praise in Luke 2.32. When Luke, he's alluding here the two texts from Isaiah, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So you see a light for revelation to the, that means that Gentiles will be converted. That's what that means. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are in darkness. They are ignorant. But Jesus is this light that Isaiah prophesied. And they will come into the fold. They will become Israelites, and then the glory of your people, Israel. So Israel too, those lost within Israel, uh, they will no longer be ignorant of salvation. They too will will join in this process. So you have Jesus bringing cosmic unity, and now Jesus bringing horizontal unity, physical unity between, we call it ethnic unity between these two groups. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the, then you jump to the you know the next chapter. You talk about the way of life, right? Well, how how does that actually come to fruition, right? This Old Testament anticipation of a new or second Exodus, right? And in its fulfillment of that, you know this this unity uh, is, is actually brought uh, by like this second Exodus that that Jesus uh, fulfills and brings, right? So how how does he do that? What do we mean by you know this second Exodus language? Yeah, so the Exodus, uh, you know, is obviously a huge event in Israel's career, and but the the event itself coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness and into the Promised Land, that becomes a paradigm of death and salvation. And we see Jesus. So, but but not only that, before we get to Jesus, the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, anticipate a second Exodus that. God will bring his people out of exile once more out of bondage, but he will do so in a way that's consummate. So when he brings his people out again, there's finality. They're not going to go through a third exodus. It's a consummate redemption that that their bodies and their souls are, are redeemed. They're brought out of slavery and they're brought into the new creation where God dwells. And that's and so the prophets, Isaiah, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those those guys, they anticipate, uh, they will call that the second exodus in, in so many ways. And so now we see in Jesus, Jesus himself, he he goes through what Israel went through. He in his baptism, he goes into the Jordan just as Israel passed the Jordan. And then on into the cross and the resurrection. Those are that's his exile, and then uh, on into the promised land. And so, those who join in with those who join themselves to Jesus, well, they they participate in this second Exodus as well. And so, that's all I'm trying to. This is a huge theme 
in eyes in uh, uh, Luke and in Acts. Uh, there are texts from all over Isaiah in both Acts and uh, Luke talking about the second Exodus. Very explicit texts that that do that. So that chapter is just sort of a an exposition of that idea. Yeah, and then in uh, the essential studies and biblical theology series mm-hmm. that you edit, was it mm-hmm. Michael Morales that did mm-hmm. the Exodus Old and New, where people right. are really interested right. in that theme? Oh, it's great. That, it's a that terrific yeah, book. It's, that, that one's super, super helpful there. And I think it makes a lot of light bulbs go off, not just in mm-hmm. the New Testament, the Old Testament, you know, itself as he, as he traces, you know, that theme's really helpful. You know, your your chapter's a great introduction to that. And then if mm-hmm. people find that fascinating, I think that would be an excellent mm-hmm. you know, resource for them yeah, to check Morales out. Morales is so good and he's really, you know, doing his best work. I, I yeah, he's he's great. Yeah. And and you kind of hinted at this, you know, the next chapter talks about the success of the last Adam, like Jesus's baptism, right? Subsequent temptation in the wilderness, kind of spearheading his ministry of redemption. And so there's there's a lot going on um, in in those chapters, and you know I, I wanted to you know get your thoughts on this. But how does kind of how does covenant theology help us understand what's what's happening here? So we talked a little bit about Old Testament, uh, New Testament use of the Old Testament, right? Obviously Jesus is there. There's a lot going on here, a lot of you know illusions and and things there. But then just kind of thinking of, you know, how does how does covenant theology also help us uh, read this kind of last Adam, uh, it, Jesus, uh, you know, fulfilling the role of, of Israel, of being, um, you know, uh, being true Israel himself. How does that kind of help us read this section of Luke as well? Yeah, so the Old Testament tells us about the disobedience of Adam and Israel. And now we're learning about the obedience of Adam and Israel. That's really the heart of it. Uh, you know, think about it. This is so, this is so critical. If, if the writers, if the gospel writers did not think this was critical, they would have just told us about Jesus' birth and death. Why so much? We have way more information about Jesus' life. In fact, not all that much about when he was a boy. I know that wasn't common to the, to the literature of the day to talk about him. That's mainly, it's a focus of his public ministry, but we have four accounts. And yes, Jesus' death and resurrection is a big deal. It's the climax of the accounts. But still, the, the amount of material that we have on Jesus' life is unbelievable. However, and think about this, with the possible exception of John, there's a possible exception there. Jesus' life is not in chronological order. We don't know if he healed this person first or that person or did said this or did that. It's sure. thematically, it's thematically presented. Why is it thematically presented? Because the gospel writers are trying to convince the re- their readers that Jesus is this Adam, Israel, Yahweh. He's both. He's Adam, Israel, and Yahweh, and he's bringing about accomplishing salvation through himself. He, Jesus does things in order to redeem people. And they spend so much time on the things he does. Why? Because he must undo what Adam and Israel failed to do. What they got wrong, he's going to get right. It's over. I mean, it's like watching Israel get it right. 
This is a story yeah. that we know. We've just never seen it done like this. We've never seen Adam and Israel depend radically on the Father. So, no, I think that's a really, really beautiful way to to put it. And yeah. you know, you you go on to the uh, in the next chapter to add to that portrait, right? That he he is like true Adam, Israel. You talk about the Son of Man's rule in the Ancient of Days, how Jesus performs the drama of Daniel 7. So help us understand that because it's, you know, it's Jesus's favorite name for himself, right? <laughs> it seems, you know, and uh, what, is, what does that mean? Why is Daniel 7 so important to Luke and uh, to us to understand who Jesus is? Yeah, Daniel 7 is a really hard nut to crack. Um, it's one of the most difficult texts in the Old Testament. And Jesus prefers the term son of man. I mean, it, it's it, just think of it like this. Daniel 7 is about this Adam figure who defeats the beast. And yet the fourth beast, especially in the, the fourth beast represents Rome. So bringing dominion, bringing dominion to the world. Uh, the son of man is going to defeat the fourth beast and achieve dominion. But with the, what's unusual about this son of man figure is that he he does he does divine things and he's treated as a divine figure. So it's very difficult how you can have both the son of man as a divine figure in the ancient of days as a divine figure. And I think that's one of the reasons. I this was this is a text that was not understood. Um, well, I, I I would argue that it that was not understand fully. Uh, by the Jewish people. This is a text that was understand fully late. Once you get to the person of Christ, then the meaning is ultimately unlocked. Sure. So Jesus is going to use the title son of man to tap, to tap Daniel seven, but, but Dan, but the son of man was not, um, was not, it didn't, it didn't carry it. It, 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 it. If Jesus would have gone around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, it would have caused so many political problems. Yeah, but by using the title "Son of Man," it's in some sense innocuous, and um, so you have to have. It's like a parable. You have to have eyes to understand. You have the ears to hear to to grasp what Jesus is saying. So it really taps into the drama of Daniel seven. And Daniel seven is about the drama of Adam in the garden defeating the beast and this whole thing. So it's a it's very complicated. But you know, really, without getting into it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, you know, the important thing to, you know, see there is just the, you know, kind of that, that rule, that authority, that connection with yeah. um, the ancient of, of days, right. That you have kind of this. Um, and like you said, it's, it's complicated and nuanced, but you do have this, this idea, um, like you said, only fully really understood in, in Christ of like this divine human figure. Mm -hmm. Right the, of of this one who will actually crush the the head of the serpent, and so that's it again. He's trying to pull us back into, you know, that Jesus being like the the greater Adam, right? But him also ha him having to be fully human, fully divine. Right, right? that's developed, right. you know, right. later. But it does play that's into right. our understanding of uh, Christology. Uh, but it does it in a way that uh, makes us connect it to the drama and storyline of scripture, which is really fascinating, I think. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's very good. 
And then there's uh, this this kind of last chapter of the the year of jubilee, right? That God atones for the sins of His people, cleanses His tabernacle so that He may dwell with humanity and the created order. So, how does how does Jesus do that? How how does God atone for sins, the sins of His people, and cleanse the tabernacle so that He can actually dwell uh, with humanity? Yeah, so the year of Jubilee, that comes right out of Leviticus 25. And um, that was supposed to happen every 50 years on the 50th year. Um, and Jesus, uh, the, and what happens is that Israel doesn't really, we, we maybe Israel celebrated it once or twice, but they didn't really do it for all sorts of reasons. One is largely economic because you had to release debts and slaves and so they're not going to be motivated to do that of course (laughs) sure and so what happens is that the book of isaiah turns that into a prophecy when god ensures that he will achieve a year jubilee and it corresponds to a messianic figure bringing it in and jesus just flat out quotes it in luke 4 he quotes from this text isaiah 61 when he's in the uh, synagogue and it's an amazing text. It's one of the longest quotations in Luke's gospel, if not the longest, I can't remember. And um, or it essentially says that the year of Jubilee is now is happening. And it's this, it's this time of reconfiguration, of new creation, of cleansing, of, you know, release of, of, of not just physical slavery, but spiritual slavery. I mean, it's a very positive thing. And Jesus is essentially saying, now it's it's now happening. And so I argue here how that's kind of, it's a big deal in Luke. It's a big deal. Um, yeah, it's, it's, just a, it's just another way of saying that it's the new creation. And then his life, death, and resurrection uh, brings about this process. Yeah, and, it, and it's, so, it's so exciting to, to study that, to, to read Jesus quote this, and then to watch him. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring in those new mm-hmm. creation realities, you know, mm-hmm. in kind of its inaugurated, you know, form. Obviously, we're awaiting, you know, the consummation of of the new creation in its fullest sense. But to see him bring those things, right, they've been promised from of old to fruition in his person and work is is so like fascinating. And just to see how Luke gives us all of these, you know, key themes early on, you know, those first few chapters and. Uh, for the most part, and then we can kind of see we're we're looking for those things, right? As we're as we're reading the rest of of Luke's gospel, is is G, as there's these stories and the parables and uh, Jesus's journeys and the people he interacts with, we're we're thinking about these themes and how's he developing uh, mm-hmm. those, and and then to see them, you know, come into into fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, with the uh, death and resurrection of of Christ is is really. It's quite exciting to mm-hmm. to read, actually. I think so. Amen. That's good. I, I, I'm curious, you know, it, uh, it, at this point, we we've kind of got a, you know, kind of a basic handle of you know some theological elements, themes that are taking place in in Luke's gospel, uh, and you know, I hope this is kind of you know whet the appetite of listeners to go to go check out your book. And so, I just had a couple of uh, you know kind of concluding questions here for you. And so I want to step back now and think about how how does reading Luke well with all of these key themes in mind and their fulfillment and culmination in Christ, 
help us understand the rest of the New Testament uh, better. Uh, how, how does the Gospel of Luke offer us encouragement, motivation for living the Christian life, and, and hope for the future? I know it's kind of like a big you know, question, kind of two questions in there, but just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, we see, but it's not when I, my first response is going to apply to all the Gospels. You know, you're watching the story of redemption. You're, this is the greatest story ever told. And so you're watching that story m- progress, move, take twists here and there. Uh, you know, you have, you have, yeah, it's, it's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how he takes upon himself uh, Adam and Israel, but he's also Yahweh. He's, he, doesn't do, he doesn't achieve salvation in his humanity. He achieves salvation in his divinity, too. So it's both really come together perfectly. And so, yeah, so it's this whole story of the Old Testament kind of compressed into Jesus' life. And so there's so many layers. It's so rich to unpack. I'm not quite sure that one person or we're still unpacking all of that, you know, 2000 years later. In fact, it's yeah, so compressed. Absolutely. It's so compressed, which is why we have four accounts. One gospel is not able to tell that story. So you got to have four of them do it. Uh, and then how is it, you know, so, so, so then you have the rest of the new Testament is just an, an application and unpacking of that event. That's the New Testament. And then how do we apply it today? Well, I mean, you know, you know, it's like, it's like, this is, it's not just Jesus story. It's not just Israel story. It's, this is our story. And these are our, these are our parents. These are our forefathers and Christ is our savior. And so we're watching him do what we cannot do. And, and what is true of him is, is now true of us. And so that, yeah. And then on the other hand, you know, we've got to live this out. It gives comfort. Uh, you know, we all have doubts. We all go through very difficult times. and But that's why these documents were given to us. And that's why we don't just read them one time. We read them over and over and over again. Like you don't just read the Bible once. You don't just read one passage. You read the whole thing over and over and over, and you never stop doing that until you die. In fact, even in the new creation, I suspect that we will still read the Bible and still explain the Bible. I don't think the Bible is going away. So, yeah, this is just part of our life. We 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 listen to it, we obey it, we apply it. Luke's in particular talks about the elevation of the lowly. So, I mean, you know, that can apply to all of us. And then of course in the ethnic dimension, you know, finding complete unity across ethnicities is massive in our society and no matter where you are in the world, that's a really big deal. Yeah, and I appreciate you highlighting just a, a few of those things and, you know, there's massive, you know, applications and many applications. Applications are, uh, you know, there's, there's so many because we're, we're different people in different contexts, uh, struggling with different things, different stages of life, right? There's, um, in in the gospel offers hope to all of those circumstances Mm -hmm. and, and situations and helps us to be able, uh, to overcome, you know, those obstacles to, you know, be joyful with those who are joyful and to weep with those who are, who are weeping and, and they're suffering and, and to realize that that's not an uncommon human experience, right? But we also have the hope of, of a future uh, when Christ uh, returns, right? To fully consummate his kingdom and usher in uh, the fullness of, of the new creation. And uh, so that's something we just have to 
mm-hmm. uh, continually ground ourselves in it. And, mm-hmm. and like you hinted at also just this uh, that discipleship is a, is a lifelong journey, right? That it, none of us knows when, when we're going to be with the Lord or mm-hmm. when the Lord will mm-hmm. return. But it, it this is, I'm not going to read Luke one time as a Christian, mm-hmm. at least I shouldn't, right? But, you know, 20 <laughs> years from now, am I going to pick up new, uh, different nuances? Am I going to mm-hmm. be able to uh, recognize a different, uh, the different significance of, of, of this particular passage or theme? It's like, well, I hope so, because mm-hmm. by that time, hopefully mm-hmm. I've read through it, you know, a, a few dozen times. I've heard a sermon series on it. You know, I, I, I picked up a, a book like yours to help me grasp uh, kind of the theology behind this. And so mm-hmm. um, I find that so encouraging. You know, I, I always want uh, people to to feel uh, like, you know, I, I don't have to know everything right now, <laughs> right? To see, I'd like I want to, uh, but that, that can feel like really overwhelming to the point of uh, being debilitating, right? And and so I always want to encourage uh, people to you know, just, just keep plowing forward, like delight in the word of the Lord, you know, take in as much as you can, but also realize discipleship's a process. And um, you're you're going to come back to this book again. You're going to come back to this mm-hmm. passage. You're going to hear somebody explain it. And it's going to be really helpful and come alive once again to you because mm-hmm. uh, the word of God is living and active. That's that's mm-hmm. how it works. And that's why mm-hmm. it's so exciting to, to dive into it. You know, maybe a last question here. I'm, I'm going to link to your book from The Manger to the Throne, A Theology of Luke's Gospel in the show notes for our listeners. Uh, it, it's a great book. I really hope they pick it up. It's a great introduction to the gospel of, of Luke and, and some of its key themes. But maybe would you recommend some other resources for us um, that our listeners may find helpful? Maybe they're considering you know, picking up a, you know, maybe a intermediate to intro level commentary, um, or, you know, may, maybe there's someone looking for uh, just a, a, a book to study for, you know, personal Bible study, or to maybe would help them if they're maybe teaching through Luke's gospel in a Sunday school class, those type of things. Yeah, so uh, a couple things. Uh, the New International Version commentary, uh, Zonervan does it. I can't, it's, it's called NIVAC, New International Version Application Commentary. That's what it's called. Daryl Bach, it's just a summary. It's a distillation of his larger volumes, two-volume commentary. It's good. Um, David Garland in another Zondervan series wrote a commentary on Luke. That one has Greek in it. It's more on the summary level, but it's it's pretty good. And then uh, Nick Perrin just wrote a commentary on Luke's Gospel in the Tyndale series. I haven't looked at that. Nick does good work, so I'm sure it's good. Um, I also have a handbook. I wrote a handbook on all four Gospels. It's... It's more commentary-like. This is more thematic synthesis. This is a synthesis of Luke. My handbook is more commentary-like. So if you want something that's just, it's like, it's me, but it's more commentary, then I would say you can you can pick that up. So there are millions and millions of things on Luke. Those are just some that, some of, some that come to mind. No, that's that's excellent. Thanks for Thanks for sharing that with us. And Dr. Glad, I really appreciate you. Uh, joining me talking about Luke's gospel, uh, the theology that we find there. Um, I appreciate your time, brother. Sure. Thanks. Thanks so much. This is 
it's always a treat to to meet new people and to talk about the Bible. It's it's the best thing. It's the best that I get to do. Listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Share it with your friends and give it a good review, whether written or just clicking some stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others find this show that may be interested in gospel-centered resources like this one. Also, if you have an idea for an episode or someone you'd like for me to interview, please reach out to me and let me know. Thank you, and until next time.